I ruined it. I'm sorry, everyone. I wrote about it and it's just been a total lottery ever since. What I'm talking about is the Japanese style Basque cheesecakes from purveyors such as Basuku in Oakland. It's one of those things where, you know, it's, it's this beautiful pastry that is light and rich and so cheesy and creamy and delicious. It sells out so quickly. <laughs> like they just they just went on sale, I think, at Nightbird today as of this recording, and they sold out within two minutes. Oh, wow. So that's the double edged sword of food journalism. Find something you love, want to keep it for yourself, feel like it needs attention, write about it. And then it's no longer easy to get. Just kind of kind of how it goes. I know. We are always the sort of engineers of our own misery. And with that said, hello, people. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Salejo. So we want to make it known we're taking a short production break, but we wanted to leave you with some bonus episodes before we're back with season two of Extra Spicy. In today's episode, you'll hear our interview with Aubrey Gordon, who most people probably know as the anonymous writer, I guess not so anonymous anymore, behind Your Fat Friend. Aubrey is an author, a speaker, and someone who has a lot of really fascinating and I think soulful things to say about fat phobia, diet culture, and just what it is like to exist in the world that doesn't think too highly of you just because of the way you look. Before we get to this week's episode, we'd love to hear from you, the listener. If you've been enjoying what Soleil and I have been doing, what we've been making, what you've been hearing, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Of course, we love positive reviews. You know, that would be great, but we'll take them all. You can write in any comments or suggestions on what you'd like to hear in season two or whatever else you want, whatever. If you notice extra good, like really, really, really good, we'll share it in a segment during season two. Probably. We will. We will. Okay. Let's get back to the interview. Um, I am really stoked to talk about your book that's coming out, but I'd love for you to just talk about the whole thing, just the project. And also you just launched a podcast like yesterday, right? Yeah. Yeah. Truly yesterday. It's very exciting. Oh my gosh. Um, so my name is Aubrey Gordon. I write on the internet as your fat friend. I'll start with the podcast and then move to the book. The podcast, uh, was, uh, started by myself and Michael Hobbs, who is the co-host of You're Wrong About. I don't know if you all listen. It has been one of my favorite podcasts for a long time. Mike is an investigative journalist who works for Huffington Post Highline, um, and has done a bunch of interesting work around weight stigma. Um, and I am a, you know, personal essayist for the most part, um, and like amateur researcher, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, uh, who has gotten way far into the worlds of um, weight stigma and dieting and health and wellness. Um, so we started a podcast called Maintenance Phase um, to dig into both sort of the science behind, but also the histories behind um, a lot of the health and wellness fads that we know about. In terms of the book, the book is called uh, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. You know, it feels like we have been talking about fatness and fat people for decades now as a public health concern, um, as uh, people to be um, 
you know, laughed at and shamed or people arguing that we shouldn't be laughed at and shamed, right? But all of those conversations overwhelmingly happen in the absence of actual fat people, right? There's a lot of talking about fat people without talking to fat people. And as part of that, we sort of learn to uh, collectively to absent ourselves as actors in the shaming of fat people, right? So we think of um, fat shaming as a natural consequence of daring to live in a body that is as fat as, say, mine, right? I'm 350 pounds, and, you know, if somebody shouts something at me on the street, that is seen as, well, you probably should lose some weight then, right? That's seen as sort of a wake-up call rather than, hey, hang on a second, that person is behaving badly and probably shouldn't shout at strangers, <laughs> right? Um, so what I wanted to do was um, write a book that really focused on the effects of the ways that we think and talk about fatness and fat people, and particularly the effects on fat people, right? We talk a lot about how much we're concerned with fat people's health, um, and the very act of doing that makes fat people less healthy, right? <laughs> like the very act of sort of expressing that concern um, raises fat folks' blood pressure, <laughs> right? It puts us at risk for a number of health concerns, but we don't care about that because we sort of have this script that we want to stick to. And I wanted to sort of interrupt that script. I have so enjoyed your writing in self and also just your tweet threads about, you know, fat role models, fat media, um, your diet culture uh, treatises and talking about the wellness books <laughs> that you collect. It's just so interesting and so provocative yeah. because I think... You've been anonymous for so long, I think, right? Because um, recently yeah, yeah, it was yeah. only the first time I actually knew your name. Yeah, it's like a new thing for me, for people to know my name. It makes me real nervous, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> but here we are. Um, yeah, uh, so I've been on um, Twitter for the last like three or four years. I initially just joined it um, to track where articles that I had written and sort of essays that I had written were spreading. Um, and just sort of see who was sharing it and all that kind of stuff. And then I got real into it, <laughs> got real into Twitter. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's been a fascinating place. I think in particular to like back to this like thing about sort of, we are always talking about fat people without talking to fat people. I think one of my favorite uses of uh, Twitter and Instagram and social media in general is to just ask questions of fat people <laughs> and just have other people read their answers, right? Like, have you tried to lose weight? What diets have you tried? How old were you when you tr had your first diet? That one in particular has stayed with me. I thought I was on the young end. My first diet was when I was like nine because um, I was a fat kid and I'm a fat adult. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, there were a number of people who talked about um, being on their first diets when they were four or five uh, or having parents put padlocks on their refrigerators or, you know, sort of having food withheld from them in a really forcible, uh, really creepy and sort of uh, a, a way that feels like it echoes a lot of abuse patterns, right? Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a fascinating and delightful place to be. It's a good reminder of how little we as a culture talk about this stuff when the sort of testimonials, yeah. these witness accounts feel so revolutionary to read when, when really like, because they're so much more common than we think, um, everyone is made to feel really yeah. isolated in their experience of their own body. And mm -hmm. I would love to hear about things that you've learned in this process of, 
of giving people platforms to to speak to that. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think that point about like, we are not supposed to feel any kind of way about our bodies and we're not supposed to speak up about it as fat people. It reminds me very much of, it's a quote that's misattributed to F. Scott Fitzgerald and I don't know who actually said it. So whoops, I'm sorry. But the idea that sort of, uh, every person who isn't wealthy is a temporarily embarrassed millionaire, mm-hmm. right? That's sort of like, we're all on our way to being rich. And I think we sort of have that belief with thinness too, right? You're not supposed to talk about what it's like to be fat because you're not supposed to be fat in a static way in the long term. Fatness is always sort of viewed and talked about on a trajectory to thinness, right? Mm. <laughs> that it's just a sort of temporary stopping point, which means that people don't really form relationships around fatness. It means that they don't really build connections around fatness. It means that they don't seek resources from one another, right? This isn't your community. This is just a place that you're sort of staying overnight is kind of the message. Um, so it's been incredibly, incredibly powerful to be um, in a sort of internet space, but in a space nonetheless, <laughs> um, mostly with other fat people talking about our shared experiences. And I will say like the number of things that I had not thought about or had not experienced that have been lifted up for me through that process are sort of astronomical, right? Um, I come at this work as a community organizer of you know about 12 years. Um, and particularly worked on uh, campaigns around transgender inclusive healthcare and making sure that insurers were required to cover trans people healthcare. So I knew that many surgeons set uh, what appears to be a relatively B, uh, arbitrary BMI restriction on who's allowed to have transition related healthcare, right? Um, but I didn't know uh, the number of uh, people who would go into their OBGYN and find out that they were pregnant and have their doctor say, you should consider not carrying this baby to term because of your hmm. weight, right? Um, I didn't know the number of people who are sort of expecting parents who are scolded for putting their children at risk um, before they've even given birth, right? Just by virtue of being a fat parent, right? Um I didn't know about um, you know the cases of there they are not um, plentiful to my knowledge, but they are present of fat kids being taken away from parents because they are seen as a sort of an abject failure of parenting. Right? If you raised a kid this fat, you must be a an incompetent parent. Right? Like there are sort of all of these sort of. Uh, aspects of life that I just haven't lived and being able to hear that from so many other folks about sort of like what's coming up for them has been incredibly enriching and has, um, I think, significantly deepened my um, commitment to and interest in, you know, looking at fatness from as many angles as I can manage, <laughs> right, feels, feels really, really important. Right. Because um, as it stands, culturally, we're only looking at it from one, right? Which is just like, how do you make fat people thin? Mm. Which is functionally, how do you get rid of fat people? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, it sounds a lot like second wave feminist consciousness raising events, you know, where <laughs> where people just kind of show up and they just talk, they start talking about their grievances to get on the path towards something more inclined towards solidarity. Um, what is the outcome of a sort of like body solidarity that that would happen from this. The place that my brain always goes is we actually need to change public policy really significantly <laughs> around this stuff, like really, really significantly, 
But we can't do that until fat people see one another as peers and as sources of support, right? Until we sort of form a sense of community. And we also can't do that until people who are not fat and have not been fat can acknowledge that fat folks have different experiences, right? As a result of the bodies that we live in, we have different kinds of exchanges with people. Someone who, you know, might be like a doctor who might be really helpful to a thin person might be just ice cold, right? And sort of hard reject a fat person and refuse to treat them. Um, to my mind, uh, we've got to get to a place where people are willing to acknowledge that different people have different experiences so that we can address the adverse experiences that we aren't currently talking about. That feels like sort of the step that we're in now. Again, where I would love to get is to a place of sort of shifting public policy and shifting culture more overtly. Um, but that's gonna, that's gonna be a while, seems like. <laughs> By the way, Arby, you are I, I've I'm newly introduced to your content and I must say, like, you are a wildly prolific essayist. <laughs> like I could live in some of these pieces until the end of time. And so I'm gonna bring some of them up. Like there's a bunch of stuff that you've mentioned yeah. that I do want that I do want to circle back to. But one of the very basic things I think is language when it comes to having these conversations, like the topics that you're bringing up, the perspectives that you're revealing, the voices that you're amplifying are, I mean, it's an, and it's, it's an extremely special thing. So it's, you, you know, I imagine there has to be care put into phrasing. And you wrote, wrote this piece that talks about um, just saying the word fat. And there was like a graph in there that was talking about like not curvy or chubby or was it like more to love or... Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's so important to talk about why the word fat is important to use in these conversations or just the delicacy, I, I guess, how delicate um, language is when you write these pieces or have these conversations. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So um, a lot of people have really strong uh, reactions to the word fat. <laughs> I should start there, right? Yeah. People have very, very, very strong reactions to the word fat. In my personal experience, there is no data behind this. This is just like anecdotally me. The people who are most hurt by the word fat are people who are not fat, right? Mm -hmm. um, and again, sort of in my anecdotal experience, that is because for those people and in the conversations that I've had with those folks, um, being called fat is the worst thing that they can imagine. Mm -hmm. And for people who have been fat, being called fat is just like, it's a Tuesday. I don't know, like what's new? I get called fat again, great, right? Like the problem isn't being called fat. The problem is like uh, restaurants that won't seat you. Mm. The problem is doctors who refuse to examine you. The problem is uh, airlines that charge you for a second seat, whether or not a second seat is available to you, right? Like. There are so many more concrete hurdles. The problem is paying often more than twice as much for the same article of clothing that thin people do, right? So for many, many fat people, the word fat is not as loaded as people who have not been fat seem to think it is. <laughs> um, I would say on an individual level, folks should absolutely ask an individual person how they want their body to be described and then describe their body that way. And also think twice about whether or not you need to describe that person's body, right? <laughs> like, hey-o, hey um, <laughs> you probably don't need to say how big someone is at any given point. But if you're trying to find clothing or if you're trying to, 
you know, make sure that there are seating accommodations or whatever, and you need to use that language, just like ask the person, right? I think there's something about using the term fat in sort of uh, a macro level way that makes people think that I'm like advocating for other people to call fat people fat. And like, yeah, if that's the language that they use, actually you should, <laughs> right? <laughs> like if that's the language that they use and that they're asking you to use, you totally should. Um, but I'm not saying go up to every stranger on the street who looks fat to you and go, hey fatty, and like don't do that, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but know that for many fat people like me, reclaiming the term fat and stopping sort of dancing around the experiences we are having all the time anyway, feels really freeing and liberating and empowering, right? To just be able to actually name our own bodies without having somebody go, oh, sweetie, no, no, you're not fat, you're beautiful. Right. Mm -hmm. um, as if yeah. those things could not coexist, right? <laughs> as if there's never been a beautiful fat person. <laughs> I love that. You mentioned like the very strong reaction that people will have to some of these pieces. And I could be way off here. I'm just going to, I'm going to toss this out. But is there, uh, <laughs> is there like a, a, is there a race element to like online condemnation of body positive conversations. Like sometimes I'll find myself stumbling <laughs> around through videos and I'll come across like these super offensive uh, videos made by, you know, like thin white dudes, skinny white women and who launched attacks against like writers, even social media personalities who kind of lead these dialogues. And, and it got me to thinking about, you know, especially like out here in the Bay Area, if we think of who like some of the freely fad diets are aimed at or like these like beach body programs or even like fit tea stuff on Instagram or who it's like marketed toward. Is there is there an element of uh, like whatever vitriol, even if you, you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't get it, but whatever response you get, especially like from online people, is there is there any kind of like racial breakdown of it or like how do you see it? Yeah. yeah, totally. This is a super fantastic question. Thank you for asking it. Um, and it's one that is like on my mind frequently in doing this writing and in getting a ton of wild emails from a ton of strangers. <laughs> um, uh, I would go down a rabbit hole with uh, folks who were had strong negative reactions where I would try to find them, right? Yeah. <laughs> to be like, who are you? Is your deal? Why are you so bad out of shape about me being like, hey, it's okay if you call me fat. Or maybe you haven't been treating fat people like people so much. <laughs> maybe that's a thing to reconsider. <laughs> right? Like, and people would just like, I would get these emails that were like, you've got blood on your hands, right? Which is just, just such a God. wild reach. Right? Like just such a bananas intense reach. <laughs> um and uh, the folks that I could find at that time were overwhelmingly um, you know some white men and a lot of white women, mm. a lot, a lot, a lot of white women, a lot of thin white women. Um, I'm also like hyper aware that like I'm a white writer. 
Um, and the folks who tend to have strongest reactions to my work are other white folks, which I'm like, oh, surprise, surprise. White people read white people. What's new? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I'm also like aware that fat black folks doing this work might get stronger and different reactions from black readers, mm -hmm. right? Uh, fat uh, Asian and Pacific Islander folks might get stronger and different reactions from Asian and Pacific Islander readers, right? Like that, um, that I am sort of, this is like a little like attracts like kind of moment, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say just based on like personal experiences out in the real world and personal experiences on the internet, um, disproportionately, uh, the worst of it has come from, um, uh, thin white folks. Mm. And again, like disproportionately women, mm. which is sort of a gross thing to talk about. Right. right. <laughs> like, feels gross as a lady to be like, whoops, we're doing it. Um, <laughs> but it's like, totally true. What is that connection then? Uh, I have like a bunch of theories about it. I don't know. The short answer is I don't know. Um, one of my theories is, uh, you know, uh, diet products have been marketed the most aggressively to white women and particularly to white women who have to lose quote, the last 10 pounds, right? It's less about how someone my size become thin and much more about how do you get off the baby weight or what have you, right? So there is like, it's very coded to be white, to be upper middle class and to be straight, right? Um, disproportionately sort of our dieting marketing. So in that way, like thin white women have been marketed to in a really intense way, often for their whole lives. And seeing a fat person who's like, I actually gave up on that thing because it truly never worked and all it did was make me fatter <laughs> uh, is really upsetting to many folks, right? The idea that someone could just give up on a test that they were still trying to take, right, uh, is, is really, really upsetting to folks um, and really galling. The idea that someone could just, you know, stop focusing on that one thing that women are told to focus on sort of constantly, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, that's sort of one of my theories, but again, like, who knows? <laughs> who knows? We need a whole lot more research to like figure out what's going on there. I will say um, the other thing that I uh, realized about our uh, conversation about like sort of the race codedness of all of this is um, I just recently finished reading a book and researching it for, uh, for maintenance phase for the podcast. Um, that was about Fenfen and Redux, which were the two prescription diet pills from the oh, 90s yeah. that were such a big deal. Do either of you all remember mm -hmm. those? Yeah. Uh-huh. So they were the ones that caused, no joke, uh, people's hearts to stop and permanent brain damage <laughs> were the cost of Fenfen and Redux, like yikes. Um, and Redux in particular uh, had their target customer. They talked about this pretty extensively. Um, in this uh, reporter's book called Dispensing with the Truth. It's great. Um, and uh, their target customer was called Roxanne Redux. And they laid out here all of the characters of Roxanne Redux. And it was like, she's mostly a stay-at-home mom. She's upper middle class. She's blah, blah, blah. She's from the heartland, right? It's just like a series of words to say white without saying white, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> right? Where they're just like, white women, just market it to white women. Could you just market it to white women? Great. <laughs> um, but it's like, there are these sort of like, when we just sort of peek behind the curtain just a tiny bit of all of this dieting stuff 
um, their like race is right there, gender is right there, and uh, ability is right there. All three of those things, right? Um, there is no diet culture without deep misogyny, without serious sort of gender policing, without deep-seated racism, and without a persistent fear of disability. Like all of those things are necessary in order to create a culture where dieting is sort of seen as mandatory. Um, and sometimes when you get to look at internal documents like Roxanne Redux, <laughs> you get to see like just how explicit that gets, right? <laughs> anyway, it was a fascinating tidbit that I was just like, I want to write a book about Roxanne Redux. <laughs> like, I just want to like imagine this woman's life. It just would be the Stepford Wives. Okay? <laughs> You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Soleil Ho with Justin Phillips, and we're back with Aubrey Gordon. You know, Justin and I both work in the food media, and neither of us yeah. really covers this huge market in cookbooks, actually. You know, we get so many in the office. Well, we used to when we were in an office, but so many of them, so much of the market is health and wellness focused, and we never ever write about it, which I find really fascinating because, it, again, it is such a huge portion of the cookbooks that people buy, yet we in the food media pretend that it doesn't exist. And I don't know <laughs> what our relationship is to that, um, but it seems like, you know, we try to, to, there's no way to write about it without perpetuating diet culture and without perpetuating this, like, a lot of it's snake oil, too, right? There's <laughs> mm -hmm. a very yeah, totally. strained relationship totally. between us and that sector. But, yeah, I don't, there's huh. no question here. But it's more just like, what, do, no. how do you talk <laughs> about this? Like, how do you? That's. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really fascinating, right? Like that's a that's a dynamic that I was not clocking, but as someone who is like an avid reader of food writing and an avid home cook, right? Who's like drowning in cookbooks, I'm so happy about all of them. <laughs> um, that's a that's a divide that I hadn't thought about. There does seem to be sort of like the world of fine dining and then the world of everything else feels a little bit like what mm -hmm. happens in food world. Is that a fair characterization? I would say yes. For you yeah, all? yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm not sure what that's about, um, but I'm with you on a lot of it is snake oil and a lot of it is recycled, right? Like we're in this moment where like everyone is losing their minds about ketogenic diets uh. without acknowledging that that is identical mm -hmm. to the Atkins diet, mm -hmm. right? That like fundamentally there are two diets that we're all switching back and forth between <laughs> and that's like a low fat diet and a low carb diet. And like all of the research is just like, neither one of those things really works. You'll probably lose about five pounds on each and then gain it back. Whoops, sorry. Right, like there's like not a discernible difference between the two in terms of like weight loss outcomes. Um, so it does feel like, like my hope would be, maybe you all don't touch it because it is such a weird like racket. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe that's why that might be aspirational thinking on my part. <laughs> But I don't know. I'm curious about like, what do you all make of that sort of divide? Well, I have never personally never reviewed a diet book and I don't really read. I mean, I flip through them because we get them. And yes, a lot of them are the keto diets and a lot of them are sort of uh, veganism for the everyman type that are sort of shaded in diet culture. And 
it's it's a weird it's a it's a weird thing, right? Because in in food media, my, my job is a food critic, right? My job is to eat food and not talk about the the bodily aspect of it, really. Um, mm-hmm. And I also know that if I don't know, just if I did, people wouldn't want to hear about it. You know, um, people kind of just assume that food writers live in this imaginary world apart from <laughs> diet culture. But we actually refer to it. And I'm using we here just to claim culpability, too, because I know I'm part of that culture. We 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 use euphemisms, much like you were kind of alluding to, to talk about it, mm-hmm. but not actually talk about it. You know, we talk about how things are light tasting. They're not heavy. We talk about um, just natural food and about about you know just there again there's a long list of words that we use to not talk about it but talk about it you know Hmm. i would imagine also like a fair amount of um uh talk that like i'm uh i'm a big fan of the great british baking show right Mm -hmm. i am like a 36 year old white woman so (laughs) Of course I am. <laughs> uh, and there is like a fair amount of talking that happens, particularly from women judges on that show that is like, uh, I'm not sure it's worth the calories. So I would also imagine that there's like, for amongst some food critics, I could see a fair amount of that talk happening behind the scenes. Is that a fair? Yeah, no, I mean, am I, when I, am I unveiling something? Or is that just sort of like, no, it really happens? Like, no, whatever. it's true. And I think a lot of people don't talk about how like the previous critic I know would was like a, a very, very strict exercise person. And I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, but he never talked about it. And it's not part of like the 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 mythology. People are just seen as like, oh, we just eat these things. And like, naturally, that's just fine. Um, but I will say yeah. that Prue on the Great British Bake Off, because I'm watching it, too, because that's my dishwashing show. Yes irritates me so yes. much <laughs> <laughs> yeah she does it a lot where i'm like oh buddy i love your glasses i love your statement necklaces please stop with this one thing like, can you just oh just bring me those bright red frames right <laughs> and a big weird bobbly necklace and talk about the food because you know a lot about the food without being like well i don't know about the calories i'm like ma'am you are on a baking show like it's all empty calories like why why are we getting worried now when the cameras turn on like i don't know right you know there is sort of this way in which we talk about uh conversations about racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia and all that sort of stuff sort of sanitizing culture but we don't actually talk about the ways in which those things sort of steal good media or ruin good media for people who are part of those communities right like, as a queer person, I can't tell you the number of things in the 90s that I was like, I love this. And then there's a weird gay, like, prison rape joke ah. in the middle of it, right? Mm. Or I love this thing. And then there's a bunch of weird talk about, like, is it worth the calories, mm. right? That's sort of like, oh, man, I really liked loving this thing. And you've put in this thing that seems specifically designed to alienate me. Like, what a weird garbage thing to walk into, right? Like, it's so it's so unfortunate. No, but it's it's so true. Man, I wish so many things weren't wrecked by it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because you once you start seeing it, and you know you know this, right? Like once you start recognizing those sorts of illusions for what they are, it's so hard to shake off. 
Yeah, absolutely. The number of readers who are not fat people who will write to me and be like, oh my God, I started reading your essays and now I am thinking twice about how I love watching reruns of The Biggest Loser. And I'm like, oh, bud, oh my God. you maybe should have been thinking twice about that before <laughs> so, now. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so like, it is one of those things where it's like walking, watching people sort of step into the matrix, right? Where you're like, oh no, you can see it all now, right? It just takes one little sort of nudge in a certain direction and then people are like, oh no, this is terrible and it's all around us, <laughs> right? Like it, it uh, yeah, it feels, it feels very, very ubiquitous to me. And there's something really honestly kind of gratifying about people reaching out and being like, oh, I see it now and I can't unsee it. Where I'm like, yeah, welcome. <laughs> Everything's a little bit wrecked. I'm sorry. But also I feel validated. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, I'm curious about how else this stuff like um shows up for you all in like food writing world right like do you all um have conversations about bodies or kinds of bodies do you all talk about um like i'm sure like restaurant accessibility is probably not anywhere <laughs> in food writing right like why would it be um uh, but I'm just curious about sort of like, are there other ways that these conversations about bodies come up in food world that you all notice as folks who are much more intimately sort of acquainted with it than I am? So, yeah, I have talked a lot about accessibility um, in mm. food and in restaurants. Um, I mean, certainly as we're seeing a lot of like these outdoor parklets, for instance, open up, they're not very accessible to people in wheelchairs. And there are so many restaurants that use this one kind of chair that I despise. You've probably seen it too, Aubrey. <laughs> like the ones with like the, the metal ones with the arms that really like pinch into your butt. Yes. Ugh, the worst. Terrible. <laughs> the worst. The worst. No one likes those chairs. No. Right. <laughs> they physically injure fat people and disabled people. But like nobody's like, oh, great. I get to sit in that chair. Like, nobody. Yeah. No, no, they're like, I'm with you. They're just like terrible. They're from hell. They're demonic. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, there, yes, there's that. And then, of course, like, I, as, you know, back when going to restaurants was a thing, um, I used to bring all kinds of folks with me just because I knew that I did not, you know, I, I don't sit in this like omnipotent positionality where I, I know the experience of every single person who walks into a restaurant. So that's a, for me as a critic, that's a really important part of my job that I see is just making sure that I bring a lot of people who aren't exactly like me to restaurants. So they can tell me like, yes, the server misgendered me or I don't know which bathroom to go into, or, you know, I can't fit in this chair. <laughs> that's really important information. And I think a lot of times we don't see it as important, um, but it is because, again, if you want to win over new readers, for instance, or you want people to trust you, you have to try really hard to to show them that you are thinking of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Totally, totally. No, I super appreciate that. And I feel like... Uh... That is like a rare perspective. Again, just as a reader of food writing, right? like 
that is a rare perspective, right? Um, that uh, much of, again, sort of the food writing that I've read sort of measures everything against the yardstick of like white men who studied food in France, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like just like a very narrow band of uh, of people and of chefs in particular. Um, so it's like really exciting to hear that you all are thinking about accessibility and sort of talking about it. Well, Soleil, you mentioning like bringing different people out to eat with you to kind of test the limits of a, not test the limits, but just see like, you know, how restaurants should ha- be able to handle different diners and such. And are we, I'm wondering if like, especially now, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit, especially now with like how, like how the country's having conversations about race. Like I, I have this feeling that there's going to be, I go back to saying the Bay Area spe- specifically, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to like, people with young families who are going to try to introduce their kids to black people because they want to you know they want to diversify like who they see and they see this moment happening and this conversation and they're just like oh wow we might not know any black people like we we probably should introduce them to some and i wonder if physical body type diversity is something that uh young families in this country do they even think about that like because i imagine you know the you know, who who a lot of young families want to have their kids around is kind of like that very, I don't know, white American dream, like thin, fit couple with active, you know, kids play sports or some bullshit like that. And I don't know, like, I wonder if physical diversity is something that young families should, like, think about when they're, they're expanding, the, you know, like who their kids know and how diverse the world is. Like, should that also be a part of this dialogue too? Sure. I mean, like, so first of all, how dare you drag 98% of the white people that I know <laughs> in this public forum this way? <laughs> how dare you? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's like the realist, right? Yeah. It's like the absolute realist thing. I uh, have been... Uh, uh, like many people, like talking to my white family members way more about race in the last like four months um, uh, than even before, which was already like, you know, uh, more than they would like. <laughs> A lot of it, more talk than they would like. Um, so I'm just like, yeah, no, it's really true. I can verify <laughs> what, what 100% of the white people I know are doing. Ooh. Um, I mean, I think, uh, Yes, that would be great, right? It would be wonderful and great if people were thinking and talking about how to expose their kids to, you know, more of the like Lizzo's of the world and like mm-hmm. Holly Mangold, who was a, a an Olympian, who was a weightlifter, competitive weightlifter um, for the United States, who was about my size. She was like, you know, somewhere between three mm-hmm. and 400 pounds, right? Um, we don't think and talk about that kind of body type being an Olympian, <laughs> right? And uh, I think it sort of blows people's minds to think about it. But I would say that actually like the work at home to my mind starts, like there are like several steps before mm-hmm. you get there, which is how do you talk about other people's bodies when you see them, right? Um, how do you talk about your own body? Do you go, oh my God, I hate my thighs in front of your kids. Do you uh, talk to them about you know, you really need to lose some weight, right? This is a very common thing amongst fat kids that like, you know, as young as kindergarten, um, fat kids are having conversations with their parents about diets and weight loss, right? 
Um, and that's not exclusive to fat kids, but it's very pronounced with fat kids, right? That there are all these ways that we talk about the bodies that are already in our field of vision, the people that we already know and see regularly, um, that is like deeply, deeply stigmatizing. So that um, talk, for example, about talking about your own body or about someone else's body with dissatisfaction, um, we know from research uh, lowers everyone's self-esteem who is involved in that conversation. Not just the person saying it, but the person listening to it and anyone else who happens to overhear it, right? Um, we also know that it weakens relationships. We also know that it like tells fat people that this is not a safe person to talk to or be around. So like step one uh, is make sure that you're actually like a safe person for fat people to be around, right? Like make sure that you've sort of done enough work that you are um, willing and able to stop stigmatizing um, people for being fatter than you think they ought to be or foods for potentially leading to weight gain, right? Like there are sort of all of these ways in which we moralize fatness. And if you as a thin parent of a thin child are like, we need you to have a fat friend and invite me to come around. And then you're like, oh, we're being bad and we're having dessert. I'll be like, bye, I don't wanna be here for that. Right? Like, right, like, so like step one is work on your stuff, right? Um, step one is work on you. Um, and, then, and then I do think like, it could be really helpful for folks to sort of uh, think and talk about how to expose their kids to more kinds of bodies. Um, and more kinds of bodies being okay. I will say, um, I had an experience a few years ago um, at the airport, speaking of things that are like, when that was a thing, <laughs> when people went to airports, <laughs> I was in an airport um, and uh, there was a person with a toddler um, who like pointed at me and was like, mama, look at the fat lady. And I was like, yep, you nailed it. Good job, kid. <laughs> And this mom was like understandably mortified, right? And was like, you don't say that about anyone. She just sort of laid into her kid in front of me, which was super uncomfortable, right? She was like, that is not something you call people. You don't say that to anyone. That is not a word that we use, blah, blah, blah. And I turned to the kid and was like, you're right. I am a fat lady. Some people are skinny and I'm a fat person, you know? Hmm. Um, and that parent then got very upset with me. Oh, shit. Um, for sort of interjecting. Right. Yes. She was like, I know how to parent my child. Right. It was like a whole big thing. Um, but it was sort of this moment where um, a person who wasn't fat was dictating how a person who was fat could talk about themselves or speak for themselves. Right. She was fundamentally pretty upset that I was like naming my own body and being like, hey, some people, like one of the things that I said to the kid and one of the things that I say to my own niece and nephew is a lot of people are hurt by the word fat and some people aren't, you know? Some people are, some people aren't. You should check in, <laughs> see if this is a person who's hurt by that word or not. Like it's really not complicated. Um, but as adults, we carry so much baggage around this stuff that it was someone who was just sort of like, she just couldn't conceive of a fat person being like, this is okay with me. It's not okay with everybody. So like, you know, don't go around yelling about people, but you lucked out with this guy. I'm fine. <laughs> like, hooray. Um, that feels to me like much more urgent work um, if folks are concerned about sort of how they're raising their kids. 
uh, around fatness, it feels like much more urgent work to be like, you know what, actually fat people can describe themselves. And you know what, actually fat people can do whatever they want to do, you know? Um, they can, again, be Olympians or pop stars or whatever. Um, that feels uh, much more urgent than just like, I would like my kid to see a fat person, <laughs> you know, or to meet a fat person. <laughs> um, and frankly, like most of us know fat people, right? 70% of the United States uh, has BMIs that put us in the overweight or obese categories. Fat people are at least medically defined and like that's a whole world of challenge, right? The BMI is real racist garbage. Um, <laughs> but like uh, fat people are a majority in the United States. So you don't actually even have to go looking for fat people. Like we're here, <laughs> we're out of here, we've been around. You know your aunt. <laughs> Call your aunt, you know? <laughs> okay. So my last question is, is it possible to divest entirely from diet culture and fat phobia? Woof. Um, that's like a huge question. And one that I will say, like, this is the first time I am considering that question. <laughs> So I'll just say, like, I'm having, like, a real, like, uh, real-time galaxy brain meme is happening <laughs> right now at my desk. <laughs> uh, I don't know that it is. I don't know that it is. I think that there are, listen, I, again, like, uh, I'm an organizer. The way that I think about things is fundamentally shaped by that. So what I think about it is, like, who has the power to change what needs to be changed? what will that person be persuaded by or that institution be persuaded by? And how do we get to that point where they are persuaded to do things differently, right? Um, so I, am, I feel less concerned with individual people living sort of perfect hermetically sealed lives that like don't engage with these systems. And I'm much more interested in, we're already all engaging with them. How do we all collectively influence them for the better? right? Or how do we all collectively tear them down and build something that works better, right? Um, so like, uh, you know, if you have to fly anywhere, you're not divesting from anti-fatness, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> you are going to airlines that are systemically charging fat people twice as much for seats that may or may not be there for us to use, right? Um, that even if there isn't, I think a lot of folks don't know this, that there's sort of this belief that like fat people can just buy a second seat and then it's fine. Often those second seats are resold um, and often we are charged for them whether or not a second seat is available. So that is the tax that we pay for making thin people uncomfortable, right? So like if you fly on an airplane anywhere ever, you're kind of supporting institutions that exclude fat people. That's not the worst thing in the world, but it's also not great. So, <laughs> you know, it makes sense to me much more to think about, okay, as a customer of this airline, maybe you're like a million mile flyer or a frequent flyer with whatever airline. Think about like, what kind of sway does that give you? How can you use that to advocate for different policies, right? Um, rather than thinking about, I'm never gonna watch any cooking show that mentions calories again, <laughs> think about, okay, I'm a, I'm a consumer of those cooking shows. What can I do to influence them? And how can I support the ones that mention this less, right? How can I lift up good work that's being done here? Um, this is all like one big moving target. Um, and I feel just on a personal level, um, 
uninterested in demanding a kind of perfection that is impossible of people and much more interested in how do we all get on the same team <laughs> and how do we all start sort of moving in a direction that is more inclusive for more people. That's an amazing answer. I love that. <laughs> Thanks, Buds. Appreciate it. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. It was so, so great to talk with you. So Absolutely. Good. Like just an absolute joy. Awesome. Uh, for listeners who want to find you and your work and, you know, find your book, what is the best way to do that? Yes. Um, so all of my work is at yourfatfriend.com, um, spelled the way you think it's spelled. Um, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, I am yourfatfriend, Y-R-F-A-T-F-R-I-E-N-D. Um, and uh, yeah, you can pre-order uh, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. It'll be out uh, November 17th from Beacon Press, and it's available at every bookstore that I have looked at, which is really exciting and really nerve wracking <laughs> all at the same time. Yay, that's awesome. Well, thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is like an absolute treat. And uh, like I say, I can't wait to talk next time. So that's all we have for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Aubrey Gordon for being in conversation with us. And remember to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and write in any comments or suggestions of what you'd like to hear in season two. If your note is extra good, like really, really special, we'll share it in a segment in the upcoming season. We're looking forward to bringing you new episodes on January 25th. Stay safe, be well, happy holidays, and thank you for listening.